Hey there, listeners. A quick new update for you that I promise is going to be shorter than the last one. First off, Patreon members at $5 a month or higher will be able to listen to ad-free episodes starting at episode 100 and going forward for basically as long as this podcast keeps going. You can listen either in the Patreon app or through Spotify, where you can get an exclusive RSS feed available only to Patreon members. This is one of the easiest ways to support the podcast for just $5 a month, and I hope you enjoy your ad-free experience. Second, those single barrels are almost here. The Barrel Rye, finished in Armagnac and picked with This Is My Bourbon Podcast, and the two Jack Daniels Barrelproof Ryes are on their way. Patreon members will have exclusive discounts and prime access. Even a dollar a month means you'll have a few hours more to get those bottles before they're released to the public. Last thing, there are now two spots available in the monthly bottle share club available to patrons at the $25 a month tier. If you're interested, I wouldn't hesitate. I expect the spot to go quickly. If it looks like it's all filled up and you're still interested, shoot me an email and we'll see if we can open up just one more spot. With that, thanks everyone and enjoy this episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to an episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Today, we're also taking a little deviation from the uh, whiskey route. We've been doing that a bunch lately, and I've been quite enjoying it. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about a new country, a new type of spirit that defies categorization, and something really fun that I got to try a couple of weeks ago. We'll get into that all in a little bit. So to talk about Tracal, Patagonian spirit from uh Patagonia, it's the southmost area of South America. So it is literally the tip of the world if you're going around that direction. And to talk all about it, we have on Sebastian Gomez Camarino. Welcome on. Thank you, David. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Great, great. And hello, everybody out there in podcast world. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, we are talking... This is a spirit that, uh, like I said, it, it really kind of defies categorization. Uh, you say so on the website, and I think it's very accurate. Uh, something that's kind of between a gin and a brandy and with elements of cordial and a lot of different things going on. But uh, before we get to the spirit itself, which is yeah, just interesting in itself, I want to just ask you a little bit more about uh, your backstory, like how you got to the point where you could start Trakal. Well, um, people that know me um, have funny uh, opinions of me, funny, uh, peculiar, not funny, haha, in the sense that um, my family uh, sort of left Argentina when we were very young. And through my father and my mother's lives and careers, we moved and lived in, in different countries. <laughs> I went to I went to like four different high schools. So kind of like a military family without being a military family. We we were very independent. It was my brother, younger brother and I. Uh, and we lived across South America and Europe, mostly in the UK, became British citizens. And but then I actually started my professional career in the US and continued moving. Uh, I uh, I started Tracal. Um, because of an idea, an observation I had, I couldn't, I couldn't shake this uh, this notion. I 
I was working for a Diageo at the time. And uh, I was in a commercial role. I wasn't in the productive side at all. But I, I, I really enjoyed uh, the the whiskey tours and the wineries and 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 the um, and the brew houses and stuff of all the brands that they had. And um, but but apart from sort of nerding out on that, I, I was sort of looking at at, at, at the history of, of booze in a weird way, uh, context, trying to find context. I'd, I'd go to a, a bar and to me, it's like a, a compendium, like an encyclopedia of, of humanity's endeavors. I mean, if, without putting too much um, of, a, of a, a shine to it, because the booze business is the booze business, but it's also very interesting in the sense that uh, you could argue it's the oldest technology continually used from agriculture came distillation. Uh, wars and histories and kingdoms and empires, uh, their fortunes were largely, largely determined in their trade. And a lot of it was, you know, associated with, with uh, alcohol production. Um, culturally and historically, so many factors involved. And I, I, I noticed that the brands in this back bar, they were like, they were the survivor brands of the look, the geographical and historical uh, 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 history. Well, historical history, that's, uh, but sort of like the trajectory of, of this human sort of activity. Uh, you know, it was in Spanish, we say alambique for a, a still. Mm -hmm. Alambique comes from the Moor, uh, from the Arab Persian. And uh, it's because they were um, uh, during the Middle Ages were the only ones that were really trading in books and writing th things down. Uh, the Vikings, I guess, must have stolen one or two of their books from <laughs> From from one of their many raids, and it got into the hands of Celtic uh, priests, uh, Christian priests in Ireland, and uh, someone said, "Oh, instead of making perfume, we can make um, a beverage." Hence, hence we had our first distilled uh, grain spirits in Northern Europe. Things like that fascinate me, fascinate me, and. You know, you could argue that there's there's like a, a tree of evolution in life for brands and products. And um, uh, you can say that uh, spirits became gins and they branched out into aquavits and um, brandies are the, are the mother category. Uh, but then you had um, grain distillates and malted grain distillates and they became whiskies and Irish whiskies and then bourbons and then liqueurs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We don't need to revisit all of that. But my observation was, how come no one's done anything in Patagonia? Because the one thing that's consistent with all of these stories is that some fool went to a part of the world and simply tried to make the best Hooch they could with what was down there. And I couldn't understand, knowing this part of the world and all its attributes, why no one had tried this. Uh, 
not to make a gin or an aquavit or a schnapps or whatever, because there's been German colonizers here and Europeans come through here and stuff. And some crazy uncle or grandfather did make a pair of schnapps or a kiesfasse down here. But it was for personal consumption and they were never really absorbed as part of the ident local identity. They never, they never materialized into that. So... Uh, if you if you're listening to me and you haven't switched off already, you probably figured out that I'm quite a fan, fantasioso guy. I sort of like I, I do these mental exercises, and I thought, well, why don't we why don't we do the same, or at least why don't I do the same? Because by then I was doing it all by myself, and no one was crazy enough to to go on this journey or start this journey with me. And it was like, why don't we um, put spot a pot where there's good water? really interesting ingredients an identity that's that's totally unique in itself and let's see what we can make down there um i was always attracted to this place and kind of selfishly it was like i was about to turn 40 years old and i thought this would be a great lifestyle for me if i were to say with my life what am i going to do for the next 25 years like before i i put my boots up I'll do um, I'll do what I want where I want, and it sounded fantastic to have a distillery in Patagonia. Even if I was the only fool making booze, it was just I needed to get it out of my system, and that's why I said that. This is how I stumbled upon it. I um, I couldn't shake the idea off. The, the it started in about 2011, and by 2016 I already moved down there. I had made, I'd already done some testing and stuff and moved down here because I'm here now. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm a, I'm a resident in Chile and we have the distillery in the Región de los Lagos, the lake region in Northern Patagonia. And uh, the brand started out in 2017 and here we are. And I mean, it's worth noting that again, it's the first time we've been to, I think it's the first time we've been to South America period, let alone uh, to Chile or Argentina or Patagonia. But it's also worth noting that obviously this is a whiskey-focused podcast usually, and uh, we think of like the whiskey big five, US, Canada, Japan, uh, Scotland, Ireland. Mm -hmm. And you know, for the global South, which is enjoying more and more representation in, in food and in culture and beverage and and history, um, there's still a lot of catching up to do. And uh, while a lot of people look at the global South, I, I immediately think of Africa, India, um, Southern parts of, of Asia as well. Uh, South America, I think, doesn't quite get the attention it deserves there because of all the cultures that are still there. And also because, frankly, it's, mm. I hate to put it this way, and I hope listeners will understand why what I'm saying in this way, but because the populations that have come down to us through the years in, in Central, and South America, Central and South America, I'm really having trouble with my words today and I haven't had anything to drink. Um, the populations that have come down to us are uh, heavily you know, European influenced. Uh, they're, the, the names are, many of the names are European, the, okay. or the you know, influence and such. So whether it was, British, Spanish, Portuguese, Dutch, German, uh, and it's come down to us that way, where for whatever reason, I feel like that's part of why the global South in South America doesn't get the same attention as, let's say, India 
or Africa mm-hmm. where it, it the Which cultures is more are quite different. Itself, yes. Yeah, exactly. More. exactly. But for the global south, really, if you take out India in terms of spirits production, um, if you take out India, then it, it's wildly underrepresented. And yes, I know India's got the best selling rum, it's got the best selling whiskey. That's right. The Philippines has the best selling rum. India has the best selling whiskey. Um, Eric from Holmes Key is going to kill me for not remembering the Philippines has the best selling rum because he told me that. Um, yeah, so I'm, here for, I'm here for that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, you know, say it's a uniquely Patagonian spirit. This is. Yes. And I guess before we get into the, the name and how you got around to it, Let's just describe it. I think it's something that deserves a little description when you haven't had it. Well, yeah. Um, I, I just, but just to address your point about underrepresentation, um, it just doesn't. It just like this part of the world doesn't um, export itself. Um, maybe like other cultures have or haven't. I think I think a lot of what you said is absolutely. I say it's probably about ninety percent of the reason. Um, you know that uh, we're probably more similar to each other within um, the Americas. Mm-hmm. Um, but we like our booze down here in significant <laughs> volumes. Uh, Brazil with his Casasha, Colombia with his Aguardiente, the rums and brown spirits and whiskeys of uh, that are consumed in in Venezuela, Piragua, which is like moonshine from Paraguay, Chile and Peru with their with their piscos. Argentina has the most European consumption. They like their liqueurs and their amari and their and um, and have a lot of their own innovation that you probably don't expect uh, unless you go down there. Um, it's really f- quite fantastic, uh, and and in the U.S. you know more about them the, the agave uh, mm-hmm. um, from Mexico and Central America. But in Central America, you have you want you have the white cane uh, uh, waro, which is very similar to the piragua and, and the casasha, and it's drunk in copious quantities and stuff, and it's very much a part of the national identity. Um, I think the cocktail scene has a lot to do with it too. The way it's consumed and the versatility of these of these particular things, mm-hmm. um, uh, the preparation of the casasha is basically the caipirinha uh, for the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, the aguardiente is drunk straight. All of these things um, kind of uh, make them perceived as one-trick ponies, although they're incredibly sophisticated and there's so much to learn. I, you know, if you wind back the the clock 20, 25 years, uh, David, think about how uh, tequila was consumed. No one knew about Sotol and Mezcal and uh, Bocanora and all these things. Was, and everyone it was, thought it was, it was a <laughs> shot and it was a, how do you want your margarita, frozen or with on the rocks? That, right. that was kind of and until someone started scratching away at the surface. And uh, believe me, I've been to over 60 countries with this business. And I chose one where I wanted to do my own thing. But believe me when I say I've been around and I've seen, uh, especially in South America, the the, the versatility and the diversity of, of the hooch that's made. 
Uh, I just wanted to address that because I think yeah, absolutely. Uh, any anyone who who's passionate about this uh, just needs to take a walk south. It'll be fun. Know what you'll discover. Uh, um, on the um, on 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 what it is. How much? How much? If why don't I flip the tortilla and ask you? What was your first <laughs> perception when you tried tracal? What did you think? So uh, to give a little context, I I got to try it at the Indie Spirits Expo in New York. Uh, this was a couple months mm-hmm. ago now, but uh, and it was. I think it was my second taste of the evening. Uh, the first being a high proof balcones. So I had, uh, not balcones, sorry, a high proof Garrison Brothers. Uh, mm-hmm. So I was like, that doesn't sound right to me. Um, so, <laughs> uh, so, you know, my palate was warmed up, let's say. And um, I went over and uh, it was still very early. There were not a lot of people there yet. And I got talking to a representative there, uh, Jenna, who said, I said, I've never seen this liquor before. I've never seen this, the brand, the from Patagonia, like nothing was ringing a bell for me. And she said, do you like gins? I said, yes. Do you like the course? Mm-hmm. And do you like, uh, what was the third guy? Oh, the uh, brandy. Do you like a brandy? I said, honestly, yeah, I like all three of those things. And she said, good. Well, I think you're going to like this. She poured me a little bit. And uh, she said, it's kind of a baby between brandy and gin it's made off of the fruit base but kind of in a gin style with the botanical and all of that just went right into the flavor profile so i got a lot of um fresh berry notes it's the first thing that hit uh also an immediate really nice mouthfeel like this is at 42 percent, 84 proof uh so it's not a high proof uh spirit necessarily but it it drinks like it drank like a uh, like a liqueur, like a you know a thicker amaro, without being too heavy. But I do like things with a big mouthfeel. So it's important to say yeah. to our people who haven't tried it that are listening in, it's totally yeah. clear and transparent. There's oh, no yes. sugar. There's no sugar yeah. in it. It comes so out of this. It's a spirit. It's not a uh, liqueur. It's a liquor, right. but not a liqueur. Right. Exactly. So, um, so yeah, the the first thing was just the berries and then um kind of apples or orchard fruit there you go uh showing the uh, bottle right now mm-hmm. and um and then afterwards was more of an herbal thing like a little bit of mint took over some kind of a i'm trying to think of the kind of leaf like a shiso leaf mm-hmm. kind of thing. i know it's more japanese but that's just the way that my brain went there um didn't become herbal like you think of again in amaro where it's super like you know this was at one point meant to be medicine kind of thing yeah. um, but it was no it was it was really lovely and i tried two different batches of it both great one had uh more of a licorice forward note to it one was a little more uh on the berry side mm-hmm. to it so you know front versus back palate for me but both were really delicious and i again it was like i don't know what this is this is something totally new and to that point, it doesn't fit in any categories. So it may sound like you're dancing around the categories of his brandy, gin. It's because it doesn't fit into any of those. Mm-hmm. So so flipping flipping the, the tortilla back to you. <laughs> now it's your turn. Yeah, so I understand. Listen, I I um I can tell um that you've been around the block. Um that's pretty much spot on. 
description of what it is. And let me let me tell you why it's this way. My intention was to try to make the most representative and authentic spirit I could in this part of the world. I had no idea if it was going to be any good because most mostly that's down to the distiller and the technique. Okay. Uh, you can make great whiskeys and bad whiskeys in, in the best place in the world. It's the distiller has a lot to do with that too, but I didn't, I didn't go down there. I didn't come here with a recipe. I, what I was trying to do is, like I said, be authentic and representative. So I only use ingredients which are a hundred kilometers around where where we open our distillery, where we have our source, we have our water source below us, and I tried to make the uh, the spirit Patagonia in a bottle. My interpretation of what it's like to be down there. Uh, or be here. Um, I think we've achieved that in as much as we've had visitors come down here and we go for hikes in, in the backwoods. And if actually, if anyone listening, if you Google Tracal, T-R-A-K-A-L, um, and you'll see the the story of the Patagonia spirit on, on YouTube and, and also go to our website and there's links and everything. Uh, you'll see that right behind our distillery, it's just, it's wild. There's lakes and then the Andes and the volcanoes. And this is this is where all these native ingredients are. And we've had guests and people come here uh, from from the US or Europe, other parts of the world, and they all, go, we go for a trek or whatever, and say, oh my God, this place smells like Tracal. And I go, nope. It's, I'm flipping the tortilla again. Cacao smells like this place. That's that's the key. I want you to open the bottle and get the air and the aromas and those unique herbs and fruits and berries that that are in Tracal. We moved the distillery to the ingredients. We didn't take the ingredients to a distillery. And we spent three years beating metal and copper steel and copper to design and build our equipment specifically for Tracal. There's three types of pots, one for each distillation. We have five pots in total right now. So we have two, one, and two, but there's three distinct types which we designed and built ourselves to make Tracal for each one of the, the, um, the stages of the distillation. The first is to extract the alcohol from from the fruit concentrate. The second is to in, to uh, prepare the alcohol with berries, which can which are all native and local, which include a lot of glycerin. So we produce our own sort of glycerol. That goes into a final distillation within a very peculiar pot because it's all copper, there's no plates, and has an agitator with a big spoon, and, uh, which mixes everything up and distills everything very slowly. And we infuse, at temperature, essential oils, which we produce year-round from seven uh, native herbs. If you didn't do that, any of that, you didn't do the second distillation to prepare the alcohol from the first distillation, which is the only alcohol we produce. And if you didn't use that design, you wouldn't 
achieve a clear liquid that behaves like any liquid. See how there's no beading? It just completely becomes clear. To the mouth, it's smooth, but it's untuoso, as we say. It's rich, but it there's there's no residual sugar. There's it's it's a micro dosing of these essential oils. It's actually less than in perfumes. Okay, but this process of a uh, canvas of fruits which are naturally sweet and smooth and rounded base alcohols uh, uh, nets this 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 result that is tracada. Uh, I didn't come up with this, but I think it's a really good visual. The three distillations is like painting a picture. Um, you need a canvas, and that's our fruits. We ferment and distill those fruits. Then we give the picture form by uh, giving the alcohol body. And then we do the detail with the essential oils in the third distillation. That's how you paint your picture. If you didn't give a form, the details would be inconsistent. Even so, even so, and this is one of the most um, special things about Tracal, all of our fruit is foraged. All of our herbs are foraged. I don't call Mr. Del Monte and say, hey, sir, give me 1,400 cases of Granny Smith's. There is no agriculture where we are. Just look at those videos. You'll see that there, therefore there's the water is pretty much impeccable, which is the reason I went down first. It's the water. It's the number one ingredient that the distiller needs to have great product. So there's no nitrates in the water table. The water is all subterranean, so there's no uh, environmental pollution. Not that there's much here anyway. And what we what happens is um, we create a spirit which um, we sort of threw the categories out the window. There's nothing in our distillery which we purchase from a catalog or or our industry supply. Not to say that we you know we wouldn't, but since we moved the distilleries to a part of the world where there wasn't any of that, we had to build it ourselves. It made more sense to build it ourselves, and everything's custom. Even our bottling lines are custom. So. It's a it's a pretty ludicrous proposition, Shrakal. It's okay, because um, you I'm, and I'm, I'm not talking down about anyone. Every uh, you hear a lot about it in the industry in the marketing. This is this is what makes our product special: the techniques, the master distiller, the ingredients, this and the other. Ours, we're not saying we're better or worse, because there's no benchmark. We're just what we are you know we've we we're we're pretty much ourselves we're a category onto one and this legally has been recognized by the ttb in the us by the europeans and by the chileans uh the sag which is the equivalent of the ttb fda here in chile we have our own description on the bottle it doesn't say gin pisco whiskey uh vodka eau de vie brandy it's patagonian spirit and that's the actual legal description. Um, it's really interesting because for me personally, my journey, this is my first spirit. 
Now I'm working and I've been developing other cool stuff. See that? That's got a different color, right? Okay. Right. Um, there are so many interesting flavor profiles here. It's like a palette. It's like a bartender or or, or, or an enthusiast uh, or a journalist or whatever. They say, what the hell is this? This is what we're trying to do. We're trying to sort of like, you know, wake you up into um, into this sort of whole world uh, that is Patagonia. When you come to Patagonia, even if you're not in the booze business or or whatever, you know, people, you know, I've hiked with people and walked around and shown them around and stuff like that. So, oh, this reminds me of the Pyrenees or it reminds me of the Alps or it reminds me of, of like the Peshawar Valley in Pakistan or it reminds me of the Rockies or whatever. Except it doesn't because then you're going to see a condor, then you're going to see a puma, then you're going to see these trees, which are completely unique. And then you're going to smell Ulmo honey from, which is a, it's the most delicious honey. Okay. All of these things, it's just like a little bit of a parallel universe. It's not the same. Just on our bottle, you see our bottle design? I don't know if you can see it because of the light here, guys and girls. That's Chile. I'll, I'll right? be including, I'll be including pictures for, uh, for any okay. audio listeners. Well, just this isn't all of Chile. Chile actually goes up to a little bit above here. This is just like the southern 65% of the country. And we're right in the middle because that's the point. We had to be right in the middle of the bottle. Just here, there are 91 active volcanoes. This is the newest land on Earth. This is the ultimate uh, testing ground for flavor on the planet. All of these are like from the bowl, from where we are, a little bit north and then further south. These are all kind of fjords. There's no road from where we are to the bottom of, of, of the continent. If you want to go to the cities down at the bottom, you either take a boat, a plane, or you cross the Andes and you go down the road on the flat pampas on the Argentine side. Each one of these valleys or fjords has different sunlight. The sun's coming out from over the east, so they actually get less sunlight because they have to climb over four or 5,000 meters worth of Andes. Think about that for a second. Okay, sunrise is 20 minutes later than everywhere else. Okay. You have all of the Pacific moisture coming in. So if you're from California and the Pacific Northwest, you know about marine layers and, and moisture coming in. Okay. Uh, and throw that into the mix, all the volcanic activity and the tectonic activity, which changes the pH of the soil. So this is the youngest land on Earth. Okay. Yet it's also one of the most diverse. Think about it for a second. The United Nations confirmed through an investigation that southern Chile and Argentina actually capture more carbon than the Amazon. We have these temperate rainforests here. We have ice fields. We have marine coastlines, which are just impenetrable vegetation. It's, it's amazing. What's what this part of the world has, and that generates small varieties uh, in in herbs and in berries and in fruits. All of the fruit that we have, if you look at some of the videos, you'll see they're not from they're they're from people's homes. They're from they're oh they're running wild. 
if we could if we could turn the clock back, imagine what North America was like. Now there's parts of Michigan and Minnesota and the Pacific Northwest uh, and upstate New York where there are still fruit trees. But imagine the whole continent covered in fruit trees like it used to be, right? This is what we still have in this part of Patagonia. So um, anything that falls off the tree that the pigs don't eat, they go in my, go in my pots. Apples, pears, quince, crab apple. For me, it's just like what great granddad would have done a couple of hundred years ago. Like I said, that was the mental exercise. You know, what are we going to use? I'm not going to make a gin. I'm not going to import juniper berries and, and grains. There's none of that. I'm going to work with what's on the land. And that's that's the story. Beating a lot of metal, scratching your head. And, and, and I think the final um, ingredient, I think probably the most important ingredient, was to be humble and to listen to the local people. I spent about nine months backpacking. Uh, I got to know... Uh, the local communities here, the Uiche people. Uiche mean uh, Che's people. Uiche means people from the southern coast. It's a matriarchal society. Uh, so the the chieftainess um, called the Maki. She uh, she I guess she read that I'm I was I was being respectful and and humble about it and what I was wanting to do. And uh, she taught me a lot about the herbs and the histories and the medicinal properties of all, of all of the things that they use and their mythology and, and their values and their culture. And and it's it's so immersive. It's like we feel very, very proud to be uh, be part of this story. OK. Um, and the alcohol has that. Think about it. And this is why I'm passionate about alcohol brands. They they encompass so much about an identity of a place and a history of a place and the unique characteristic of a place. I challenge anyone to think of another consumer product that has that sophistication and that depth and that sincerity about what they are. When the brands are sincere, okay, um, something like a McAllen's or a Johnny Walker or a, a Barber and Core rum from Haiti or, um, or a Japanese whiskey. In terms of the, the, the sincerity of those, of those traditions, uh, Pisco is from the 16th century in Peru. I mean, Alavas and, and, and those, those brands, literally they're still making it with the same pots that, that the Spanish conquistadores built when they were there because they couldn't make wine. The grapes were not good for wine, but let's make an orujo and then we'll call it pisco after the market town. That that is that that's just amazing to me. That's that's like anthropologic anthropological heritage. And um and and I think when you understand that, I think you actually get like a little bit of extra uh pleasure out of your your glass. This month's Impact Spotlight is on a new whiskey from Adelphi, McLean's Nose, a new blended scotch whiskey expertly crafted to have a West Coast character with both a high malt content at 70% and a high proportion of ex-sherry casks. McLean's Nose is both a nod to Arden Market's rugged Western Peninsula home with its beautiful landmark on the south coast of the peninsula 
and as an homage to the long mentorship they received from Mr. Charles McLean. McLean is an undisputed legend, affectionately referred to as the Chief Nose, since 1993 when the Adelphi name was revived as an independent bottler by Jamie Walker. Bottled at a super approachable 46% ABV, this is the perfect dram to sip while reading one of Charlie's acclaimed books. At an even more approachable $35 a bottle, this is a must-buy, especially for those of us who, much as we must love bourbon, are going to be fully bourboned out by the end of this month. Join me in the dram and look for McLean's nose in your favorite whiskey shop near you. The Whiskey Ring Podcast is proudly sponsored by Impex Beverages. For sure, and there are two uh, two examples, one recent and one that was the very first episode we ever did uh, that I wanted to bring up as kind of a, not a you know side-to-side comparison, but something to think about. So the, the more recent one, which may be the episode before this, maybe two back, I, we'll see how they come out, but... Um, I was talking with uh, Eddie Brooke, who is in Australia, on the far east coast of Australia by Cape Byron, does Cape mm-hmm. Byron Distillery. Yeah. And they put, out, they put out a great gin, helped out by Jim McEwen, well-known to uh, anyone who has worked at Diageo and at other brands like that, for sure. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. But, but uh, one of the things that they uh, focused on was that you had to Aside from the juniper, which had to be brought in because it just wasn't, it doesn't grow in that area. Uh, whoop, hello. Um, <laughs> Georgie, by the way. Yeah. Uh, this is home. Sorry. It's okay. Uh, this is my boy, Georgie. <laughs> uh, you know, aside from the juniper, everything is from, well, most things are from that area. I think 17 of the 25 botanicals are native to the land, very close by. And wouldn't use them. right exactly, and because I mean, in that case, it's when they were making when they were making their things, and and those sure. evolved and survived and thrived through competition, through uh, bankruptcy, through divorces and murders and yeah. <laughs> wars sure. and rebellions, and they worked and they worked it out and they got through. And I think why wouldn't they? It's I think it's really fantastic, fantastic sure. that people use the locals. Uh, tell tell their story and so that was the the one part of it because there are most of the botanicals are stuff that we're just not familiar with in the u.s and that i guess australia is technically i don't know if it's australia is considered western or eastern i don't know but um just yeah, not no, we're not familiar been, my brother lives <laughs> been there many times my brother's been there yeah. for 20 over 20 years uh it's a fascinating place because uh it is in a process of transition okay mm-hmm. And uh, Asia is changing the character of Australia. Um, so I, I think I think Australia now is its own thing. It took them 300 years of <laughs> for them to, to figure themselves Definitely out. Fair. So, uh, you know, that was the first one that came to me. And then the other one was from our very first episode, which was with um, Old Time Spirits. Mm-hmm. It's a place, very small place up in uh, Pacific Northwest. Uh, Will, Will Persons. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was my guinea pig. And always thank him for it. And uh, he has an Irish background. He, his roots go to Ireland way, way back, hundreds of years. And uh, he wanted to make a spirit that was Irish whiskey, but made with an apple base. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was telling the story. And this, keep in mind, this is two and a half years ago. This is I knew very, very little about the industry. I was still 
learning all the categories. I was learning the terminology and he was describing how we needed to get, or he needed to get rather a special uh, certification because he wanted to call it Irish whiskey. But obviously, right. Dispensation. Because as you know, as a fruit base on its face, you'd have to call it a brandy in right. the U S or in most places I would say, but because he was able to show the uh, historical record to your point, the anthropological histories of these things that at a certain point in Ireland, you were making Irish whiskey with an apple base and mm-hmm. calling it Irish whiskey, that it was valid. And he got the dispensation for it. And I keep thinking to myself, that was the first episode. And that's such a cool, weird fact to come out of it. And I think that goes. Isn't, to it, isn't the, human activity yeah, so amazing, diverse, and sometimes yeah. trying to understand it, we we invent these boxes and these orthodoxies and the categories and stuff. Mm-hmm. And actually, human activity is more like this nut job here. It's more haphazard <laughs> and and playful and and clueless and clumsy, like I describe Georgie to be. And and that's actually uh, and that's actually how these accidents happen. When I came down here, I I didn't I didn't I kind of discovered for myself the whole culture here uh, with chicha. Chicha is a very interesting thing because chicha is an Aymara, Mapuche, uh, where all of the sort of Pacific-sided South American indigenous cultures they share that word, and basically uh, interpreted to being alcoholic juice, like from fruit. Um, in the Cahuan, Darien region of Colombia and Panama, they make it out of tropical fruits because that's what they have. They ferment those out. Um, in Central uh, Pacific, South America, Peru and Bolivia, people know about chicha because it's made from corn. And it's famous because they, they ferment it because they spit into it. So that's kind of like one of their its notorieties. Okay. <laughs> but in the South, we call it chicha when it's made from apples and pears. Okay, we use the same word. So we don't we with atracal we don't distill chicha. We use the same fruit that they use because it's a it's just the, the fruit that they have. Chicha requires fermentation uh, of many months and it's usually buried, so it oxidizes. So it's very dark, kind of flat. It's like a failed cider in the sense that there's no carbonation. Uh, but it's it's depending on the fruit. It can be very sweet and delicious. And I thought, ah, here we go. Let's use sure. this fruit. Yeah. We don't I'm oxidize sure. it. We just no, we no. just make the juice, ferment it, and in a few in a few days, as soon as as soon as we can get the uh, fermentation process to finish and get as much of the alcohol as we can, usually just above five percent, and that's that's what we distill in the first in the first distillation. And if anyone, by the way, just because there's going to be someone who catches that catches this, and I got to bring it up. If anyone heard that they, you know, in one particular version of chicha they spit into it to help the fermentation and you think oh well i'm never going to try that i challenge you with this if you've ever been on a distillery tour and stuck your finger in the malt or the wash mm-hmm. where has your finger been and they still <laughs> let that go forward so distillation cleans and fixes a lot of things so don't knock it till you try it it'll be fine because <laughs> i trust yeah yeah i, 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 I don't i don't agree trust with you more. <laughs> 
Yeah. Listen, I, I couldn't agree with you more, especially since the fact that it initiates a process which is a closed loop. And by producing alcohol, it actually sanitizes it. Right. All right. It, it, the process ends yeah. when you can't produce any more alcohol. So exactly. you, could, you couldn't get it cleaner. Guys, for anyone who's a bit squeamish about booze, let me tell you something. Think about it. And, 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 and those out there who are nerds about booze like I am and the history of booze, you know, they probably figured out that up until Napoleonic times when Mr. Napoleon was uh, sick and tired of how stinky Paris was and how sick and full of dysentery and all sorts of infectious conditions his troops were, when he basically said, you know what? Let's move the tanneries out of Paris and let's put sewage and clean water flowing through the city. No one, no one in the world, unless they were going to a stream or a, or a waterfall or a, what we call a vertiente, which is like a, a spring, no one was drinking the fresh water because you don't, it could kill you. Okay. Mm -hmm. So every historical figure, right up until uh, some of them still held on, like Winston Churchill, uh, but <laughs> Just about every important historical figure um, was pretty sourced up from an early age. Thousands of years, we drank, was drank wine and beer instead. Yep. Meads and ales and all sorts of things because it was the only safe way to drink. So um, I, I throw that out there because sometimes <laughs> we, when we get sophisticated – and we get super nerdy, and and uh, we we also tend to fall into the trap of becoming a little uh, squeamish about about this, this about the human existence, uh, trying new things, trying street food, and well, as you travel, or 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 like a teacher or this thing like that. I'm not saying you do it every day, but it gives you a context of you know how we've survived and evolved to get these exquisite. Uh, brands and, and products, they they all came out of very humble beginnings, very humble beginnings. Don't forget, Juniper was put in pre-Napoleonic times to their hooch because it was the only way that the uh, the Dutch or the, the people from uh, the Netherlands, because two different words for two different things, but it's the only way they could drink the alcohol because when they diluted it down, when they did the marriage with the water that was available, that water was pretty much putrid. Mm -hmm. So they masked it with juniper because they were great traders and they could get the juniper and they thought, mm, this makes this thing drinkable. <laughs> and if, yeah, for anyone who's so complaining that the that juniper is too strong a flavor, well, now yeah. you know why. <laughs> so the, the alcohol, the alcohol made it potable, but it certainly didn't make it. Uh, uh, it, it, it didn't. It didn't open up the appetite. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Juniper, juniper, juniper made it made it uh, drinkable. So um, it's those little tidbits of uh, of like anecdotes, which are which I think are pretty cool about our industry uh, being one of the oldest and. Uh, and, and and listen, I'm sure you've already covered this in podcasts and stuff. Whiskey and brown spirits have got they're completely their own uh, uh, etymology and, and history and stuff like that. And I think it's fantastic. I've always loved brown spirits because of that. Absolutely. And this thought just came to me too. Uh, the Say the world's oldest profession is prostitution. 
I have heard more and more challenge that because, uh, I mean, it, it, we're talking honestly, it's probably true, but in terms of written records, at least, uh, the oldest one's actually brewing. The oldest yeah. written record that we have is a receipt for buying beer from Mesopotamia. Yeah. Uh, and I have seen it. I've seen the record firsthand. Couldn't tell you what it said because I don't read cuneiform. But um, mm-hmm. the point being that that's the first record that we have. And we know the Egyptians 5,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, were drinking beer. They were getting paid in beer because even yeah, because exactly. the Nile they were was, trading it, services yeah. and goods and services for it. Right. Yeah, the people who built the pyramids were being paid in beer and bread because one, you know, who wouldn't want to be, but also because they were treated well and you definitely couldn't drink the Nile because it's a very shallow river and not clean water because everyone's living right up against it. So you had to drink something that was, as you said, potable, not going to kill you and, you know, enjoyable, give you a nice little buzz along the way. And, and here's me, little me, thinking, well, Patagonia is actually the last place on Earth. It's the last place that's been populated by humanity. If you look at the genetic uh, history of, of, our, of our species, we left sort of the, uh, uh, the southern uh, valleys of uh, uh, Africa, South Africa and Namibia, those places, and we had a couple of immigrations out into Europe and then sort of came back and then went across Asia. And then either we went through the land bridge uh, over Alaska and then south, or we went across by boat. That's still kind of debated. Uh, the The amazing thing is that we, um, the last place we sort of came to pollute and screw up is Patagonia, you know? And... What I'm trying to say is that this this journey of humanity to to come down here, it, it never actually happened. Although although we had been populating this up up, up until about twelve thousand years ago, which is a surprise because they thought they crossed the Alaskan uh, land bridge, and you had the, the 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 Puebla communities and stuff like that. Would be great to get the comments on from people. Uh, on this episode, if anyone cor- corrects me if I'm wrong, but from what I understand, you have the the whole Puebla um, uh, and Clovis cultures uh, in North America. Those are established, you know, several thousand years ago. But actually, in Patagonia, in a place called Pilauco, which happens to be where I first started making tracal, pure accident. I swear to God, pure accident. Uh, I rented out a a little uh, warehouse there and I put my first two pots there. Pilauco, when I went there in 2016 to start making the thing, they actually discovered a petrified um, like compound and footprints, human footprints from about 13,000 years ago, way earlier than people thought had been populated so much so because there was a disconnect with between the populations in North and Central America and the people in the South. They immediately, they thought these people are Polynesians that came from New Zealand across the Pacific and Rapan and Chile, uh, uh, Chile is fortunate. Uh, I almost said owns, but Chile is fortunate to cut, to count on its territory as Rapa Nui or Easter Island with the famous Moabs and this, that, and the other. So we have our own Polynesian culture, but no one thought that there was like a, a land bridge 
because there wasn't because of the the vast distances, like six thousand kilometers from the coastline of South America. You know that people made it on rafts and and boats and kayaks or, or whatever. Pilauco, the name Pilauco, is amazing because it's just like Tracal; it's a compound name. Co means water. Pilau mm -hmm. means sacred, and it's where I started Tracal that there's a natural spring, and there was mega there okay in those times what they call the quaternario georgie quite the quaternario period which is where you had the giant sloths and you had all these other uh, large mammals mm -hmm. they would join up and meet there and go to pilaco to because of this natural spring and humans settled near there so they could hunt them about thirteen thousand years ago so even though we have that history, and I've gone off on a huge tangent, <laughs> even though we have that history, none of the, the distillation never joined up, never caught up. No one made the spirits down in this part of the world. So I guess I guess my job was to make sure we caught up. That's what it was, and use local ingredients. And I I swear to God, this when I I found that out after the fact. Because there's some universities out uh, from North America that have, have helped to uh, understand all of this, uh, all of this anthropological activ human activity there from thirteen thousand years ago. When we understood uh, this happened, when I was just using the same water to make uh, the first versions of Trakao. Um If we have, if we have um, one thing that makes us different, is that. And it's been so, so cool that the local people uh, in just in, in the region where we are have really bought into it. And also the, the, the Chile bought into it. On our bottle, this this is, but we're very proud of this. I don't know if you can see it, but maybe in a picture you'll be able to show it. All right. That says Chile. That's a marca Chile. We are an ambassador brand for the country. We've been nominated. And... Uh, it, it seriously, it makes my my hair start, stand on end. That we've been we we were invited to be considered a, a marca Chile, like a Chile brand. So, um, um, I guess um, being late to the party doesn't mean you're going to have a bad time, uh, <laughs> because because uh, uh, now um, we've inspired a bunch of other people locally to start making spirits too. And there's some really interesting things happening. And the cool thing is that they, they're they they're getting the message. The first few things that happened locally was people trying to make gin, okay? But then they realize, you know what? It's, it's, it's actually where we are more of a pain to actually bring in the ingredients and, and make the gin. So they're using uh, Luma and Meli and all these other unique flavors to uh, to flavor spirits. So this is like there's a lot a lot going on here, and there's much more of a journey happen happening here. We're a small group of maybe five distillers 
uh, and we're all pretty uh, pretty crazy in what we're doing because but but we have no rules and we have no boundaries and no one's telling us oh no this needs to be macerated for this long or or you can only use this type of wood or this has to be done at this temperature. We're making it up as we go along, and we're having a lot of fun and hopefully this gets translated for consumers. And, and they get to try new flavors. I really think they should. And there's, uh, well, first I'm going to ask you about the name, but there's uh, two questions after that that are going to be really important in terms of how the consumer gets to enjoy this. So uh, you mentioned the influence of the local indigenous cultures, the communities that you got to meet while you mm-hmm. were backpacking and exploring this. Um, mm-hmm. And you were telling me a little bit about this before we started recording. So the name, let's compound as you said but yes go from there what does it mean well it means um well sorry i have a i have a large dog uh you know it doesn't mean you have a large dog it means something else um <laughs> as pronounced locally um it, it's two words it's a phrase tra is courage valor cal is an act so together you can say it's it's an act of bravery it's usually uh, been used um, to describe the brave, you know, the warrior brave. It doesn't mean the, the chieftain or the captain of the battalion or whatever. There's no hierarchical structure. It just means the guy that sticks his chest out, guy or girl. It's, it's not at all uh, gender-based. And remember, this is a matriarchal society. So it's like it's whoever sticks their chest out and sort of goes forward and takes a leap of courage. Um, I learned, obviously, this from the local uh, people. So it was just like, oh, this is perfect. This is the, this is what the name should mean, because we're the first distillery in this part of the world doing our own thing. Uh, not to say that we're brave <laughs> or heroes. Like my old man jokes, he says, you know, cemeteries are full of heroes. So uh, you can't, you can't get too, too brave or too cocky. But but that's that's what it means. It's it, it means moving the distillery to the ingredients. It means expanding the distiller's map. Um, but uh, I never had that much personally as founder. I didn't I didn't have that pyronic sort of let's build a pyramid here kind of ambition i just couldn't understand why no one was making booze here i just saw that all the ingredients and all the character all the stuff i just i discovered it being here i had already taken that leap of faith and of bravery uh, i personally had already sold my stuff i'd moved away from the u.s i'd been living in the u.s and i wanted to do this and i showed up with a couple of bags and actually spent the first few months uh sleeping away in in a hutch somewhere and traveling and and just trying to absorb all of this um that's what tracal means it's 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 that it's this it's the patagonian spirit in the in as much as a patagonian spirit is also acting like a tracal warrior because this is the land of pioneers this was never conquered by any colonizing force. No Brits or no Spanish or no French or Portuguese was able to subdue the the the, the, the native indigenous uh, nations here. They were off, fought off. Actually, 
it was unfortunately uh, due to uh, disease and just proximity to Western lifestyles and Western people that ended up killing these off. But these are these are proud, brave, tough people. And then uh, after a century or so, when you had people sort of leaving Europe, a lot of Germans and Italians and Spanish came here, mostly to the Argentine side, but some sort of crawled over the, the rock face of the Andes. Um, they were also survivors, and the Patagonian spirit was to build from nothing, which is pretty a pretty hostile place. It's beautiful. It's 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 a wealthy land in the sense that there's the rivers and lakes are full of fish and there's fruit and you can plant anything here and, and you'll be fine. But but you gotta work really hard. The weather, the connectivity, it's it's a pretty daunting um place to try and eke out a living. And uh, and that's that's also what it means to us when we say Patagonian spirit. It's that sort of pioneering, make it on your own, and and build beyond what you may benefit. Uh, that's the kind of thing. And I'm I'm super proud and happy that people, some local people here, are inspired to make uh, spirits. In fact, I'm working with a public university here with people from the Ministry of Education. Um, so uh, uh, we can uh, encourage graduates, uh, students at the local univers uh, university level um, uh, to become distillers and uh, actually create a curriculum for distillation in this part of the world. Um, it's, uh, it, it's, uh, the economy here is, you know, salmon farming and some dairy, and it's kind of a little bit of it. There's other parts which are actually more specifically where we are. But so the university, basically people who do food sciences and stuff like that, they want to become food engineers or uh, a work in, in, in food production, the food industry and this, that, and the other. They, they, they learn about salmon farming and, and dairy. There's, there's, nothing else so um we're trying to do that which is um feed off the popularity of the brand locally and feed off the um uh the fact that you know it's kind of like a cool fun industry right you know i'm not wrong when i say that david no. um and that you know we get some young people to do that and and learn about distilling so we're building the curricular and hopefully you know, for September 2024, we'll be able to do the first modules within the university courses, and and who knows, maybe we get some some people one day doing their writing their thesis on distillation in this part of the world, which would be really cool. Really that would be cool. cool, yeah. And and I, my first of the last two questions is about that distillation. Uh, but before I forget, there's also another point to be made there, and I I really think it's important. Everything's been important, but I want to highlight this too. Um, despite the fact that I cannot get him to answer my emails, um, <laughs> whiskey writer Dave Broom uh, has been a big influence on how I think about things and how I think about whiskeys and spirits and and where they come from. Uh, first with the way of whiskey from Japan, studying Japan, and then more recently, a sense of place. And I think since I got uh, the book, A Sense of Place, back in December, uh, 
I don't know that I'd heard that phrase very much before, but I felt like I heard it in almost every conversation after that when talking about a new spirit, the idea that it's not just, it's not just terroir. It's not just what's local. It's also the people, the culture, the history going back, whether it's 50 years or 13,000 years that led to what you're creating now and the best distilleries, products, you know, what have you, alcoholic or not, uh, incorporate that into it. They incorporate the sense of place into the spirit and let the spirit speak for that place as well. In a, you know, in a, um, uh, how do I say it? It goes both ways for, mm-hmm. for both parties. And uh, I was, as a comparison to you, I was also, again, I'm always thinking of comparisons. I was thinking of uh, Isle of Rasse, mm-hmm. fairly new distillery up in Scotland. Uh, you know, it's a, it's an island that's about the size of Manhattan. It's almost identical in size and in shape, remarkably so. Uh, and it's got about 150 people on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you've ever been to Manhattan, you know it has a little bit more than that. Uh, so we can fit um, fit a few thousand people per train. So uh, yeah, a little bit different. So the the point being though that. Isla Rossi Distillery went there and they wanted to form a distillery there, but rather than, um, and they did the same, the same kind of idea at um, Torbeg when they built this was Mm -hmm. don't just plop a distillery down there. It was, you've got to work with the locals. If they don't know something, teach them, they can learn, especially uh, one of my favorite phrases, farmers or fixers, you know, they can learn and fix problems better than almost anybody because uh, they had to for thousands of years and they still have to. And mm-hmm. I like the idea of just the, the culture being in some ways small enough for better or worse, but also concentrated enough where you can really imbue the spirit and the product with the cultures that you're working with. You know, David, what it is to build on what you're saying, it's a healthy culture. It's a yep. work-based culture. It's a culture that's proud of its traditions, that still values certain name, place names and stuff like that. Uh, my uh, my head of distillery, um, we built the pots together. We built the distillery together. He's a local guy, 10 years younger than me. Name is Daniel Vergara Levican. He's He is the uh, archetype of the distiller that we're going to put through the university process. He's going to feed back everything that we learned together because I don't think there's a better candidate in all of Chile, okay, mm-hmm. uh, to be a, a distiller. And uh, his background was woodmaking. I I hired his grandfather, who was an elderly gentleman, his his company, to, uh, uh, to build out some furniture and repair the roof of the first place I rented out in Pilarco. And after a few weeks where I saw him working and I, uh, I brought in the pots, which I had uh, uh, sort of built, the first prototypes I had built to my designs uh, locally, parentheses, the reason it was local and I chose that place is because of the dairy industry and you have people which are good at making sanitary wells and on stainless steel and stuff like that. They can build pots and stuff. So I told them, you know, use the mix so you can see you can join uh, copper with stainless steel and and then uh, you know, here's a tube and that's the column and 
and all that jazz. Well, I had built these things in the first initial designs, and then I needed someone to work with her because I couldn't do everything. Mm. And I told Danny, hey, let's um, let's work together. I like the way you work. You want to learn something new? And his answer was, I always want to learn something new. And and like you said, farmers are problem solvers. Well, the people here, they, you know, the, the roof leaks, go fix it, you know, do it yourself. Right. You don't call some, you don't call some service people to do it, you know? Um and um that is such a healthy thing. And and for me, it's just been such a joy. Because I was a city guy, you know, I was a, I was I knew I didn't know about operational things and stuff like that. But I guess like just like in 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 an office where you start a new job, the first thing you can do is learn how to make the coffee. Um in a distillery, <laughs> you need to know you need to know where your you know where your pots are going to be placed and the, where the water is coming and you know you know how you're gonna how you're gonna heat this thing. Uh, you start from the ground up. You start from the coffee machine. You start from the photocopier. You start you start from the ground up, and and you problem solve and and it's amazing how you figure it out. Sure. You know if you're humble, if you're prepared to learn. And if you don't, you don't bring a lot of baggage with you. Um, and 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 the people I found out here are amazing because they're they're like, you know, they're excited to learn new things. And I just came up with an idea. I mean, everyone here has been drinking pisco beer and wine. It's not like you know we're totally off the edge of the map. But it was like you want to make what <laughs> from from what and what are essential oils. And you want to use tepa? Tepa stinks. Yeah, because the wood stinks, but the leaf is amazing. You make an, an, an essential oil. That's what gives you some kind of like a licorice aniseedy kind of edge to the herbal profile. You want to use tepa. Yeah, yeah, I want to use the leaf. I don't know what the leaf tastes like. The wood stinks. All of these conversations were, were part of like the gestation process for, for Tricano. It was so much fun, so much fun. Uh, um, I, I those three years before the first bottle came out, I, I genuinely were just the most fun, fun, some of the most fun fun moments in my life. Not got a clue what we were doing, just beating metal. One of my pots, I call, I, 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 I lovingly call Frankenstein, because it's got more patches and screws and bolts and <laughs> and you know what we call chapa, just like you know patches. It, it looks like Frankenstein, but it works, you know. You, you got to be careful with uh, tradition there. Traditions to name stills after women, or at least female figures. Yeah, this, you're right. You're right. You're right. But this one, uh, I guess I'll call her Mary Shelley uh, after the girl that wrote uh, the lady that wrote. Traditions are traditions are made to be broken. You're already making a spirit that had to get its own categorization. I think you can get away with having one still that's <laughs> called know. Frankenstein, right? But to to that point, though, I did want to ask. Uh, you know, you you said earlier in the spring of full circle where you started off. You were working with Diageo on the more the commercial side than the production side, but you got to visit all these different places and different distilleries and and breweries mm -hmm. and wineries. Um, when you were really ideating Tracal and and thinking about what you wanted it to taste like, what you wanted it to be. Um, having an idea in your head, but obviously not having produced it yet. 
when you're looking at the still types that you wanted to build uh and the the not only in the individual stills but the full you know three still process there. three still five still three still three, still three distillations uh, there's two large ones for the first distillation. There's one large one for the second distillation, and then there are two smaller ones which are are gotcha. for okay. the third distillation. Total so, of five, three different. Gotcha, gotcha. So, you know, did were they really like from scratch for what you wanted to create, or were there uh, influences that you looked at and said, "This is the kind of maybe it was the mouthfeel from one distillery, or uh, the way they got a particular flavor out of another distillery." Like, was there inspiration from there or was it really from from scratch no i mean it was it was in in one sense it was totally from scratch because once you use the fruit and you decide this is the fruit that you're going to use which is often i mean let's not um let's not beat around the bush you know these are economic decisions just like making beer is an economic decision like making the first uh whiskeys or moonshines are economic decisions you know, uh, distillers, I've, I've read it in many, many books, distillers are economists. They're trying, they're trying to find the right temperature to get the, 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 the best runs and, um, you know, get the, the most uh, volume out and whatever. So, so you, you, you start from that, from the practicality of what you're doing with what you have around you. Um, you can't be too exquisite and, and too artistic. Not yet. Okay? So you, you start with what you have. Over time, it evolves. Ask any of my business partners and where I started out. The first versions of Trakal were kind of were strong, were not as enjoyable as they are now. I, 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 I put it down to the fact that we were a, a little... Um, or at least I was, I was a little um, uh, immature in this, in as much as uh, a bunch of kids uh, with their first garage band, uh, they beat the drum too hard and they hit only power chords, mm. you know, and until they understand melody and they understand space and they understand timing and they understand, you know, volume, uh, you don't really make a great song. You know, you don't form a great band. And, and I was, I, I never changed the recipe. I never changed the original ingredients, but I toned it down in the in the dosages and in the time of the distillation and the time of distillation and also the, the evolution of the shapes to become more uh, consistent in the production. Um, you, 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 it's very difficult to explain, David. It's like you become obsessed. You're hyper-focused on what you're trying to do, that you're making decisions all the time, you lose the plot. You know, sure. it's actually counterproductive to come with there and say, oh, I'm going to make the best vodka or the best gin or the best this and the other, because um, you're just trying to figure it out. And the best thing you can do is just to say, mm, that's good. That's better than yesterday. Okay, what did I do? What was different? Did we write down what the temperature was and the relative humidity was on this day? Let's look at the spreadsheets. Keep information. Keep information. Keep information. And that and that that helps you cut out a lot of uh, time. Mm -hmm. But yeah, uh, 
you really, I mean, if I were to say that I, I had some great grand plan or scheme or masterpiece I was going to build, I'd be lying to you. It was just like totally improvised, trying to figure it out. Danny and I doing a little head scratching. Um, we set fire to a couple of places. Uh, <laughs> it, uh, it's, it's what we were doing, you know? But one of the key things, actually, I think uh, helps answer the question uh, was my mother's input. My mother, my mother is um, is a fantastic person, and she saw that I was toiling away trying to get different versions, and it was going one way, or it was going in another way, and there was trying this herb, and I was trying this other herb, and this and the other. And it'd been about two and a half years, and they were getting worried about me. It's like this guy's gone off to the edge of the world; he's lost himself in his thing. Um. When are you going to stop, son? When do you know that you got it? She asked that question at the perfect time. I had different versions. I had gone in different directions. I was doing, I never changed the recipe, but I was, I was, I was like, you know, I needed a criteria. I need someone, something to draw a box to say, this is, this is in the right and this everything outside that box is in the is in in the wrong. Hmm. So I thought about it for about seventy two hours. I says, how will I know that I stopped designing and I can start producing? And I came up with two reasons: one, everyone likes it; two, the local people recognize it. So if the local people recognize it and like it, and then everyone else everywhere else thinks. That's interesting. I like that. I'll take a chance. That's when I said, stop. And that's that's basically all I did. It, it just, That's how it came out the other side. All of this other stuff was just like place, water, fruit, uh, the Uyiche people, Chile, me, my background, Danny's input, where we were. Uh, all of those things went into a huge funnel and then it was just focus, 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 focus. Okay, let's problem solve. Let's try and make the best we can. And then the timing of my mother's question was like, okay, what are we doing here? When do we stop? When everyone that tries it likes it, or at least the majority, not everyone likes everything. We're not trying to be pizza here either, you know, where everything is like, cheese bread and, and sauce but when people like it and when local people like it and recognize what's in it so it's going to be authentic and that's it that's when we stopped we said okay the name came around pretty soon after that as well we didn't have a name before we made the product so and that took about three years and here we are with a spirit that defies categorization that's a new flavor that is incredibly versatile. Uh, I really, I would also encourage people to not only uh, taste it on its own, but check out the cocktail guide from the website. Oh, website. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, which has plays on classic cocktails. I mean, my favorites, Negronis, uh, Paper Planes, things like that. But also 
handmade new cocktails specifically made with Strakal from some of the best bartenders or at least most well-known bartenders can't claim they're the best because I don't know all of them, but um, certainly <laughs> ones that I, I know the name uh, mm-hmm. mixologist, uh, cocktailologist, whatever you want to call them. People who know their stuff in the industry are mm-hmm. in this guide making twists on their own cocktails yeah. and which I think is something incredible and it shows the uh, inspiration that something brand new can bring to an industry. It was I, wonderful I, just I know to my place through. in the world. David, thanks for saying that because um, I'm not a cocktail maker. I mean, I would be I would be foolhardy and arrogant to say I'm going to make a product that you know will make every bartender better. That's 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 just like that sounds ridiculous to me. So I'm not that guy. Uh, I know my place. My place is to try and make something that they'll find interesting, and it's one more color to add to their palette it's one more something else just like they stand in front of a bar they listen to the consumer the consumer is is sending them obvious and also subliminal messages about what it is that they want what will make them happy what is it they need what is it they're they're coming from and these these brains these creative brains are rifting like djs into into different uh uh, uh, directions and working off classics or inventing their own thing. I, I'm just a bottle with a story, with a flavor pro- pro- uh, profile, and uh, and it it doesn't come with any baggage either. Mm. So it's like, oh my god, you used an Aquavit when you could have used a pear brandy. It's like we're not part of that conversation. Right, we're just. I just you, you just you just use cow, you know, with all of its characteristics. You chose to use Tracal, and it doesn't have any of that baggage. On the contrary, if you want to make a spin on a on a Negroni, a spin on a Paloma, on a Mojito, or something, just want to knock it up in a different direction. Tracal works well sub, subbing out or split basing with with other spirit categories. Mm-hmm. Um. Far more than I could have ever imagined. Seriously. First time I mixed it with anything was with tonic. I guess my many years living in England, I, I couldn't I couldn't get away from like a Gordon's and, and Schweppes, you know, um, or, or Britvik. Uh, and I thought, oh, my God, that's fantastic. Um, but I had no idea some of the things that you can make. It makes an amazing south side. It makes... Uh, mules are amazing, great, fantastic. Uh, pour into sangria and kick the sangria up a notch. Give it a whole uh, herbal thing, especially if you're using uh, um, citrus. Uh, uh, spritz were great too because it's it's you see what it is. It's fruit based, but it's got citrusy type herbs as well as greeny herbs. And the tepa is is kind of licorice sweet, but we sell tricale in Italy. I went to Italy and I, and I did some uh, classes and stuff with distributors and they took me to some great places and to have meals. And I got, I got 
they hit me over the head with grappa. I, I, I've always loved it, but unless you actually go and you get immersed into the whole grappa thing in Italy, you have no idea how incredible that spirit is. Mm. And they just absolutely loved it because they have some bulka, which is licorice, but very sweet. And then they have these grappas. And then, and then Tracal shows up. It's a much more subtle licorice type. But but the herbs are kind of like fennel for them. And fennel is so important for Italy and Italian food. Mm-hmm. Fenocchio, they call it. Like, um, Hell, that's what makes Italian sausage Italian sausage, the fact that they put fennel in it, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so it's like, what the hell is this thing? And they love it. And they drink it straight. They, they, they tell me, I wouldn't touch it. I wouldn't mix it because it is perfect. And then you make some an agroni. <laughs> and they go, what? Because it's a lot less astringent than gin, than juniper. Because it's fruit-based. There's none of that grain. There's none of that juniper sort of like mouthwashy type thing. Which is, don't get me wrong, I love it. My favorite cocktail was always a Negroni. So... It's like, but it's a different Negroni. It's a much more rounded um, Negroni, much more naturally softer, not as bitter Negroni. So you give that to the Italians and it's like, what did you do? You know? <laughs> and I, said, I, I don't know. I didn't, you know, I never made the first Negroni with your cow. Some bartender friend of mine, uh, I became a friend of mine after I moved to Chile, said, well, let's make a Negroni. Let's, let's make cocktails with gin and with your cow. Made a Negroni, and immediately we're looking at each other going, wow. So have fun with it, is all I can say. That's a perfect way to end it. And for uh, for people in the U.S. and uh, many markets worldwide, but especially in the U.S., it is available from the website, direct shipping to you, easy to get. So you know you don't have to go have some uh you don't have to have a mule anywhere <laughs> to get it um which is <laughs> so nice once in a while yes. yeah that's our, that's our there will be a, a link in the show notes of course to uh, social media as well you can follow uh, and to the to the main website as well uh, i will also post my uh, tasting notes you basically heard them if you listen to the podcast but still i'll post the notes and a little bit of the story there the rest of it i'll leave for listeners and in the meantime uh, Sebastian, hold on with me just for a moment after we uh, close out. I hope you all enjoyed a little sojourn far south of the border, far south of the equator, uh, to really explore something that more than maybe anything else that we've tried in this podcast is really unique and new. So thanks, everyone, for listening. Really appreciate it. And this has been another episode of the Whiskering Podcast. I'll see you all next week. Thank you, guys and girls. Bye. Hey folks, thanks for listening to another episode of the Whiskering Podcast. If you like what you hear, please go ahead and click that subscribe, follow, or like button. Leave a rating review on your podcast app of choice, and let me know what you want to hear. You can reach out to me through the podcast apps, or email me at david at whiskeymywedderingcom with any suggestions or ideas for new show guests. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash whiskeyandmywedderingring, that's whiskey with an E, for as little as a dollar a month. $5 a month gets you access to bonus content, including our soon-to-resume Under the Influencer series, and $25 a month means you join the Barrel Share Club. Each month, Barrel Share Club members get to try products sent to me for review, 
bottles from my own collection, and sometimes bottles that I just pick up because they're fun or interesting. Right now, only five spots remain in the Barrel Share Club, so grab your place today. Finally, please follow on Instagram. You can follow me at WhiskeyMyWeddingRing or at WhiskeyRingPodcast. You can follow me on Twitter at WhiskeyRing. You can follow on Facebook at WhiskeyMyWeddingRing or join the Facebook group, the Whiskey Ringers group. And I hope to see you there. Cheers. Thank you for the support and see you next time.